0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Things I Never Said podcast. It is currently September 13th, and with us, our guests, Dr. Alex Tran and Dr. David Tran. We are your hosts, Beatrice. And this is Wendy. And today we'll be talking with these two Asian American doctors to learn more about their experiences and how they've been doing during this pandemic. Please note that this podcast may contain triggering and our sensitive topics. If you feel triggered or need a second to breathe, please take care of yourself first and know that we've included resources in the description. Please note that this is a continuation of our previous episode and that this discussion was recorded on September 13th. Some facts may be outdated, like the increased death toll number, and this was also before President Trump was diagnosed with COVID-19. If you would like to jump around the discussion topics, I will be outlining the different time codes for you to explore. At 2.10, how the mental health of healthcare workers are treated. At 11.05, on mental health stigma in healthcare and as an Asian American. At 1330, thoughts on people wanting to socialize in person for mental health reasons. At 1920, putting the COVID-19 mortality rate and numbers in perspective. At 2425, experience with racism in the workplace and personal life. At 3645, thoughts on the future of COVID-19 and of the U.S. as a nation. My name is Alex Tran.
1: I'm a
2: resident physician in emergency medicine in New York City. I'm Dave Tran. I'm a family medicine and palliative care physician based in the Bay Area.
0: I think we've talked a lot about like the physical symptoms and distress, and I think it's important to also understand like how how's mental health care treated, whether it be for um, doctors because they're experiencing all this um, these different circumstances and changes and um, patients that they have to um, care for. Can you talk a little bit how this healthcare me- mental health? provided at your hospital or clinic? And do you see any long-term effects that, because COVID has brought this conversation about death to the forefront and caring for one's health, do you see it changing the healthcare workspace?
1: I would say from a residency perspective, we, we were provided with a lot of support during this time. This included, you know, our usual, you can call this number if you need a therapist line. But it also included support groups that were created throughout the residency. Every Wednesday we have conference and every Wednesday there'd be another support group. And I think we talked about this, Beatrice and I talked about this earlier with mental health, which was you have to take away all of the barriers, um, whether that be the timing, the scheduling, your your background, like the, (laughs) the idea that perhaps it's not seen as an actual issue in the Asian American community. You have to take all those things away. And for a little bit there, we did that. Post-coronavirus, there was a little bit of a lull in the ED where the volume was actually very low, which has never happened before, especially at the EDs I work at. I think every week or every couple of days, we would do a mandatory mid-shift. Everybody drop what they're doing and come outside and sit in a circle with a therapist and talk about what you're going through this week, talk about um, how you're dealing with the stresses, talk about your triggers this week. Does the vent alarm still trigger you? Does the idea of a coronavirus patient coming in right now with a unstable airway still scare you? And you know, for some of these things, it, they should still scare you. Um, but it was the idea that the mental health aspects and the resources were placed in your hand during work and mandatory. And I thought that was a great initiative. I thought it took away the idea of scheduling. It took away the idea that you had to overcome this personal barrier of, I'm going to go see a therapist. Um, And it normalized something for everyone in the department, nurses, doctors, attendings, residents, everyone had to go. So I thought that was really powerful. I'm hoping that we take lessons from that moving forward. I'm hoping that Um, One of the ideas that I really liked from another co-resident at another hospital was that every intern at that hospital has a mandatory pre-scheduled therapist session, every single intern, whether or not you go to that is your decision, whether or not you want to keep that is your decision. But I think when you take away the barriers and you're like, I've already took out 9am this Tuesday for you to go to your therapist, you don't have to go to work that day. It makes a huge difference and it really sparks a conversation about what your residency
2: values and what your residency
1: expects and thinks about you. Um,
2: Just bouncing off of that, I can say from my own training when I was in residency, um, and this is a, a national sort of epidemic of mental health, but I think for every healthcare provider, whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, or even just like a case manager, sometimes even the cleaning staff. Um, everyone who works in healthcare, unfortunately experiences some level of trauma as part of their day-to-day work. And I don't think that's actually really been acknowledged. Medical residents in particular are at some of the higher risk for depression because of the long work hours. And I'm open to talking about mental health because I felt like, you know, when I was in residency, I, I worked like, you know, at sort of, there's a, a residency work limit, which I think they actually took away of 80 hours a week. But... The idea of going to therapy, you know, it sounds simple, but when you've worked 100 hours that week, when you've been on call for 30 hours at a time every third or fourth day, you know, the idea of scheduling therapy when you could be sleeping or doing some other form of self-care or just being outside, um, it's really hard. It's a really hard swing to make. So it's actually really innovative and important that they offer therapy for interns, especially when we're talking about this sort of collective and individual trauma that people are experiencing on this scale. On my end, me being out in practice, uh, I have a little bit less structure in that way, meaning that when you graduate, you're sort of expected to monitor and engage in your own self-care practices. It's sort of incumbent upon you as a professional. However, I don't think the culture of medicine in the United States has really facilitated that. In fact, a lot of The history of mental health for healthcare providers has been very punitive, meaning that if you are suspected of being impaired in any way, you could lose your medical license. So I think it lends itself to a lot of hesitancy. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were doing what was called surge planning, meaning what do we do if the hospital gets overrun, if there aren't enough palliative care doctors, which there are not, period. What do we do if there's not enough palliative care? And what do we do if there's not enough hospital beds or ventilators and we've got people dying in places where they shouldn't be. Um, any death from coronavirus to me is unacceptable because I think from a public health perspective, a lot of this could have been prevented. When I look at the death toll, I see, and I'm looking at it right now, it's 194,000 deaths in the United States, uh, 6.5 million cases. So those are 6.5 million families that have been affected. Those are 194,000 families who have lost somebody. And so for me, I I perhaps take this on a really deep emotional level, having worked with death on a really regular basis. But I think on a day-to-day basis, when we're surge planning, they said, Dave, you know, which hospitals are you credentialed at? And we need you to be on backup. Meaning if the palliative care team gets overwhelmed at, I used to be credentialed at Stanford, I'm not anymore, but um, at El Camino Hospital, which is one of the main hospitals in Silicon Valley, if you think about how dense Silicon Valley is, right? you no, we need you on backup. And so I will tell you that the first couple of weeks of this, I was waking up every night because I was having sort of nightmares of being in a ward full of coronavirus patients, you know, locked in there in my own PPE and no one else allowed in but me. And having to do terminal extubations, which is also a super dangerous procedure and planning and rehearsing in my mind what these procedures would look like, what medications would I need. What medications do I use as a backup? Because we were facing medication shortages as well, Um, particularly opioid medications and other sedatives because of the sheer number of people who were getting intubated. What is my procedure? What is my backup procedure? Can I do this for 30, 40, 50 patients in a row? Um, So I was having nightmares. Luckily, that didn't come to fruition because we locked down at a really good time. But I was talking to Alex. I was talking to my other friend's who were emergency room doctors in New York. And this was a very real possibility. And so that initial anxiety started to abate. But, you know, we have these surges that come and go and come and go. And so you're, you're sort of cycling it in and out of this. For myself, I, I made a personal decision to go back and seek therapy because to hold this, um, not just as a trainee, but now as an attending physician, as someone who's in charge of a team and a couple hundred patients, it's, uh, it's a lot to hold. <laughs> it's more than any, any, and just being really honest, like it's more than any single person should hold on to. And the other, the other side of this is that, you know, while it's great that there has been a lot of public support, I have seen my own peers who are not in medicine, you know, they're out having parties, they're out doing all the things that I wish I could be doing, but I know it's not safe. And, and to be honest with you, it fills me with rage, because I look at the mortality data, and I look at You know what's actually happening, society, and it's very, very concerning. And I feel like a lot of healthcare workers, and I just want to acknowledge this too, is that a lot of us have sacrificed a lot: our own mental health, our physical health, our family lives. I knew doctors who couldn't see their kids for the first couple months; like they would, they were living in their garage uh, and would see their kids through the screen door, you know, for months at a time because they didn't know what this was really going to look like, and they wanted to isolate and keep their families safe, but. The ability to social distance, the ability to uh, sort of quote unquote quarantine, that's a privilege. And I think that really exposed that realization that housing, space, all those things are a privilege that we can't really take for granted.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that there's a bit of stigma about mental health in the healthcare workplace. Has you, have you seen that improving? Like there's, there's more conversations about that. And do you see that stigma also amongst patients? I think that stigma is
2: very cultural. I don't think it's even just limited to to medicine on some levels. Uh, and I'm also in the Bay Area right now where, like, everything's been on fire for the last month. The air quality is bad. So I think, like, everybody's pretty depressed right now, <laughs> unfortunately. I'm laughing, but it's just really sad. Like, so many things have been taken away from us. We're in a collective. I really think about this in terms of collective trauma. Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways... Um, that has been normalized, but I don't think that the uh, infrastructure for adequate mental health care coverage by insurance companies, the number of therapists who are available, they're actually being overworked right now for sure. If you call a therapist right now, there's a good chance you'll be on a waiting list for a little while because there's just not enough people. You know, are there enough SSRIs out there and enough primary care physicians and psychiatrists to prescribe them to Abate sort of this constant existential threat. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's like the sole solution to this, um, but I think this has really shown us that our mental health infrastructure in this country needs a lot of work and it needs a lot of prioritization. I agree wholeheartedly. It, it, it's, it's,
1: it's beyond the profession. It's, I mean, it's in our own community. I think the Asian American community in and of itself doesn't really talk about mental health at all.
2: Yeah, like, do we even like? What are the words for depression in in, in Vietnamese? <laughs> what are the the words for stress in Vietnamese? Right, we've had to adapt them from English in some ways.
3: On the topic of mental health, so one thing about quarantine is definitely it creates a lot of isolations, and it's difficult on on everyone. And one of the arguments I have personally heard to go against, um, you know, staying at home, is for people who have, you know, pre-existing mental uh, mental health challenges, depression, you know, they're like, well, it's dangerous for my brother, for my family to do that because that worsens their conditions. While that is, you know, still dangerous for them to uh, socialize, especially if they're elderly, but at the same time, like health, uh, mental health concern is still there. Um, so I'm wanting to hear what your thoughts are on that.
1: I'm I'm pretty empathetic to quarantine burnout. I think I, I distinctly remember telling my friend that I was canceling my birthday party. It was in uh, late March, and I was like, you know, we'll probably be okay by May, so let's just do it in May. And here we are in September. Um, <laughs> nobody expected quarantine to last this long. If you looked at every other country that did the same thing or went through the same thing, they it was a couple months because they did it well, they did it correct. But I do understand that quarantine fatigue is is very real, and i I think my plea here is that if you really really do need that social interaction, if you do need to go outside, do it safely, be outside, do it during you know do it in an open like field if you can if they, if that's central park for you, then that's central park but then wear a mask and keep six feet apart and wash your hands and don't hug and you know it's it's not lost on me that. This is a, a really difficult time, and there's a, a fine balance between taking care of your physical health and then taking care of your mental health. But what Dave was alluding to earlier, what really enraged him was those people who were careless, who were um, in large social situations, who may not necessarily, you know, know the consequences of their actions when they post it on social media, but who are kind of disres- almost
2: being disrespectful to the work that's being done on the front lines we're We're both very empathetic to this because we're you know Alex and I are both pretty social people i think <laughs> like i'll I'll just be out with it like this this sucks <laughs> this really sucks um every part of this has been kind of uh excuse my french but I I think living in the Bay Area, like a month ago, just before the lightning storms, it was like, don't go outside because of risk of dry lightning. And I'm sitting here going, what in the world is dry lightning? (laughs) Like, like it's not even raining. Like, I can get hit by lightning now. (laughs) And then the fire started and it was like, all right, I can't even go outside if I wanted to, or like, I, I could, but like, regardless of the pandemic, the air quality is like, quite bad right now um so i i completely empathize with the desire to go out be with people be with friends be with loved ones but i think we have to do to make a calculated risk and i think what's really special about the united states and i mean special in a number of ways so in san francisco they didn't want to take a sort of authoritarian and punitive look at these things meaning that they didn't want to start going around and finding people and and, you know, putting people in jail for not wearing a mask. And I was actually listening to another podcast um, called Fifth Admission, where they actually talked to the, I think the manager um, for emergency management for the city. And, and their approach actually is they took a really core public health that We want to educate people and encourage them and, and, and help them choose to make the right decisions. And actually, by and large, that social pressure in San Francisco has really worked as a big city. The numbers have been pretty good. Um, compared to other places, but the hard part is that Americans are very individualistic and we have to make individual decisions we have to do a risk assessment and I think people are very subject to their own biases and a part of this is confirmation bias right like oh well my risk is low and uh, you know'm I'm, I'm in my 20s or 30s and the risk of me dying is low I'm not going to die everything's gonna be fine. So I'm not gonna wear my mask. I'm not gonna and oh look, like these studies here so that if I'm if I'm outdoors, I'm fine. And so like there's this confirmation bias that goes on and going, oh, okay, okay, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And you look for the studies that will will, will tell you what you want to hear. And social media is really good at telling you what you want to hear. I find that it's really driving a lot of the behavior and a lot of the defensiveness and a lot of the division, divisions out there about this. It's it's muddling the the truth is that this is an airborne illness. We all need to maintain some sense of space. And if we can do that, life can go on. But if we don't do that, we're introducing risk to ourselves and to other people that we care about. And I actually am, am very involved with, with the inline community and, and, and rollerblading in, <laughs> in my free time. And we had a lot of discussions. I even wrote some PSAs and did, did some stuff out there to, to get people, hey, you know, if you're going to go to this gay park, please or a mask. And I, I feel frustrated because I see even with the air quality now, like this isn't like a this is like a group of people who are very anti, they're kind of punk, like they're very anti-authoritarian to begin with. But I see people having barbecues and you know taking group photos and high-fiving each other after tricks tricks and landing stuff and I'm like oh man I can't I can't do this right now.
3: <laughs> I actually have one clarifying question regarding the mortality rate that you mentioned earlier, David. So there's, like you said, there's a lot of information being presented in, in different ways. And for at least from our our standpoint, you know, healthcare worker probably have a, a more clear idea on what's going on. But there has been a lot of conflicting information that's been uh, assimilated on like whether if the mortality is high or not. And it's, you know, it's also like different ways to present the data as well. So if you can help put the mortality rate in perspective to maybe, you know, see from, from, from your guys' experiences, like, what are we dealing with here?
1: I I wish I had specific numbers for you. I honestly do not. And I kind of have to revisit from time to time. And I really just want to say, like, mortality rate in and of itself is skewed by a lot of things. Um, one of which is testing like if you die and your coronavirus test is not done is that a coronavirus death or not if you die during coronavirus times you might have been a coronavirus death even if you weren't i don't know the specific numbers but i i just gotta say like this is this is a lot of deaths period this is these are this is not numbers this is not percentages this is like nearly 200,000 people dying and no number is going to hold a candle to that. No, you're not going to comfort anybody's family by saying, that's, that's so unfortunate that you're part of that 5% or that 2%. Like to them, it's a hundred percent every single time because it happened to them. And I don't think that we should be sitting here like saying, oh, it's such a low percentage. Like the risk is so low. The mortality is low. The mortality is high in this specific group. If it happens to you, it's a hundred percent to you. And so, you know, I, I try to move away from that a little bit because I think people want to kind of want to be reassured that their population is okay or that what's happening to them, to that everyone else is not happening to them. Um, when it happens to you, it happens to you and it happens to you a hundred percent. So that's all I can say about that. And and people's lives are real. And these numbers that you see on TV, even if you don't know anyone who's died, th- those are real people. That's, that's somebody's family that got torn apart. That's, that's a person.
2: I want to echo what Alex said is a lot of the death numbers, I mean, I think if you look at the raw number of deaths in terms of just the, the, the raw mortality itself, it's such an extraordinarily and unfortunately high number. If you look at the mortality rate data, it's going to keep shifting and it's going to be shifting on a number of things. Um, early in the pandemic, we simply did not have enough tests. The initial tests that were sent out by the CDC were not very good. And so your sensitivity and specificity of your tests at the beginning is poor because you don't have the right data collection methods. And at the same time, in you know, there's a social media post going on about how they think a lot of the early deaths, there was a lot of people who died of respiratory failure from unknown causes or idiopathic causes back in February and March. And we'll never know that that is lost. We'll never know if those truly were coronavirus cases, but we we saw a spike immortality from respiratory failure. And then, you know, there's some people going, oh, well, that person died of a heart attack or a stroke. Did it Did it count as a coronavirus death? And actually early in the pandemic, it probably would not have counted that. Now that we have more testing, hopefully people are testing and counting it as a coronavirus related death. And so the death rate, the rate in itself, that percentage is, is a little bit skewed. It still remains pretty age stratified, meaning that Older people, particularly people over the age of 55, and men slightly more than women have worse outcomes from coronavirus, and we think that has to do with the weaning immune system as time goes on, meaning as you get older, your immune system just isn't as strong, which is a very well-known phenomenon. There's no amount of herbs and supplements that will fix that. (laughs) Uh, What about essential oils? There's, there's no amount of hydroxychloroquine that will fix that, right? Or Uh To go back to my point is that the mortality rate is deceiving. The raw mortality data is unacceptably high. And then one thing that we haven't really talked about is morbidity. You know, the, what about the 20-something-year-old who got a double lung transplant and spent 50 days in an in intensive care unit and 30 days on, on ECMO, which is basically a heart-lung machine? They're, they're not counted towards mortality because they didn't technically die. But if you had a double lung transplant and you've lost a lot of your body mass and muscle mass because you spent most of a month or two on a ventilator, that, that's such a high morbidity. And as Alex says, you know, if you're of that 0.001% of 20 or 30 year olds you know, in that range, that's 100% for that person. That's life-changing.
0: And we talk, I'm gonna circle back because we talked about we both are um Asian healthcare workers. I was wondering if because we've talked about the stigma and mental health and things like that, has COVID impacted your view as a Asian healthcare worker, whether it be in the news and like being just a public person in day to day life, maybe experiencing indirect or direct racism and have you received support socially or in the workplace because of that
1: i think i i saw this this almost dichotomous treatment as a physician and then an asian american physician and or maybe just an asian american i worked 12 hour shifts seven seven to seven most days seven to seven in the hospital during coronavirus was scary it was a lot of work um, it was very grueling but Everybody who came in the door was very thankful, very grateful, very polite. The phone calls that I got from family members all started with, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. We really appreciate you. New York loves you. And to contrast that with walking home from work one day, you know, got called a racial slur, felt very unsafe, all in the matter of a couple hours and a couple blocks, really. And that's scary across the board. I. I, I really remember calling my parents and just telling them to, to stay inside. And they were like, what's going on? Like, is something going on on your side? And I was like, no, it's just coronavirus. Don't want you guys to be unsafe. But what I really, half of it was also like, it's enough to worry about your parents um, in that one aspect of like their health, but it's, it's even scary to worry kind of about the racism that might occur, the the violence that may ensue. And I think we see that in New York, in in July, there's an 89-year-old Chinese woman who got gasoline doused on her and then lit on fire. And that is, in, in what, you know, it, it's, it's ridiculous to happen to anyone. It's even more ridiculous to happen to an 89-year-old like elderly Asian woman. And we see this in New York, that hate crime spike is enormous. I wrote an article in April and had already increased 450% in the Asian American community. Today, that number is, is much, much higher. It's I think they have 21 incidents reported in New York City. This is compared to three last year. And hate crimes are, by by far and large, just not reported because if you're you know called a racial slur, you probably won't report it. Um, and then if you're an Asian American Or you're an Asian immigrant and you've been told your whole life that, you know, just keep your head down, just don't cause a scene, it's okay, it doesn't matter, uh, you definitely won't report it. So you have 21 incidents in New York City of Asian hate crimes. It's probably a vastly underreported number, but ask any person, uh, or ask any Asian uh, American or Asian immigrant here, they've experienced something along the lines of outright violence or just discrimination or or just a, a, a few racial slurs here and there during this time and it's, it's been different
3: have,
0: has it seemed different also because that's more on kind of a day-to-day basis um do you experience that in um health working with patients and things like that
1: i have not personally experienced that working with patients I, it's it's just different you're at you're at work you're a doctor and for the most part it's okay
2: you're expected to, you're expected to sort of behave with a certain professional. Um, you're supposed to, you're supposed to respond professionally to someone who is being hateful towards you, which is which is crap. Um, this is just this awful.
1: I've been, I've been like called things in the ER, but it's it's a little different because they're never <laughs> the right visual slurs. You're like, oh, this is just like generic. Like you're just calling everyone that word. It's not a big deal,
2: but
0: <laughs> it's like creative points. Oh my god.
2: I have, yeah, I had this uh, really interesting moment where I was working with someone who had really severe dementia, and I think, that, I don't know what they've been seeing on TV, but they were in a nursing home, and so they don't always have control over what kind of media is getting funneled into them, but they were really confused and, and sort of delirious, and they saw my face come up on FaceTime, and they're like, I don't want the Chinaman to see me, I don't want the Chinese doctor, oh, <laughs> and I'm like you know, trying to be cool about this, but at the same time I'm sitting there going, all right, is this like, is this coronavirus racism or is this like generic racism? (laughs) Like, is there a difference? Probably not. Like, And then I'm trying to figure out like, is there like, is there like, I'm just trying to rationalize this. I'm not getting mad, but it's like, is there a medical reason behind this? Like, are they racist because they're delirious or were they already racist? And now they're just, more obvious about it, (laughs) Uh, and I try not to think too hard on that and try not to, you know, you're trying not to pass judgment on a patient because you don't want it to affect your medical decision-making, but it still um, really stinks, and it's really unpleasant when you're faced with that. I would say that Asian Americans are not a monolith, and so a lot of us look like a lot of other things. You know, I I identify as Vietnamese-American But with facial hair and a tan, people think I'm Filipino. (laughs) But I also speak Spanish. And so during the summer with facial hair, a tan and speaking Spanish, people think I'm like some kind of Latino (laughs) or Latinx. And I think I, I grew up in a very diverse place. So that doesn't like offend me or bother me or anything. But like, I think on some levels, I was already experiencing the everyday pressures of being a person of color. And then coronavirus hit, right? And then the president started referring to this as China virus. And so it's like, all right, do I want to look Asian now? Do I want to look Asian? Like, I shaved the goatee. I really, you know, like yeah. at the end of the day, you can't really hide that. And if people are going to be racist to you based on your identity expression, you know, if they're going to be bigoted based on that, if they're going to be uh, just awful. Uh, I, I think for me like I have to realize like I have to remind myself like this like racism isn't like a rational thing. people try to make it a rational thing, but it's it's really not like hatred is a deeply emotional thing, and it's not a rational thing and so, as a healthcare provider that's that's where I've kind of put that in my brain, but I think on a day to day basis, because I'm driving around the community sometimes seeing patients, it's like you know when i'm out when I'm working driving. And we've had civic lockdowns. We've had, because of the the protests, we've had, you know, shelter in place in the barrier Area that was actually being sort of enforced at some point. You know, I'm wearing my scrubs. I've got my badge on. I've got another sign on my dashboard that says doctor in big letters so I don't get pulled over. <laughs> you know, when I show up to someone's house, like I am trying my best to look like a healthcare worker. But what if I'm just going to Target? <laughs> what if I'm just trying to make a grocery run? Like, I don't look like a healthcare worker. I don't look like a hero or anything. In that situation, I'm just another Asian person <laughs> um, subject to the same level of racial tension that we're experiencing everywhere right now. And even in the Bay Area where we think of things as being pretty liberal, there's this sort of grave level of discomfort and not wanting to go out and put myself at risk on, on the basis of race alone in addition to like everything else that's going on right now.
1: I think this is also a very unique situation in terms of kind of always being the token minorities in terms of like, this is the model minority experience, right? Like I think the United States for a long time has kind of looked at Asian Americans as this is a model minority. This is what happens if you go to school. This is what happens if you have strong family ties. Look, they make X amount of money more than the average American or white American family. And just to have that turned so drastically, on us overnight because the president says China virus or because the virus came from China or you know, for any other number of reasons is, is jarring, but I think it also points to how temporary the views of us are. They, we only fit into these views as they are convenient to the people around us or to the community around us. We're basically uh, conditionally accepted as minorities up until there's something else to to point otherwise. And that's why it's so jarring. And maybe like, maybe this is me projecting experiences that I have in my family in terms of, you know, the hush, hush, stay quiet, just do what you need to do, go get an education, speak English without an accent, et cetera, et cetera. But that that's not what it's about at all. This is about basically just fitting into a mold until you don't fit into the mold anymore. And at that point becoming very aware that you are not part of this country, even if you were born here, even if you have in many ways succeeded in whatever you pursued, that's what
2: it's about. That's why this is so jarring. That's why this is so scary to me. One thing to note is a lot of the positive sort of associations attributed to the model minority myth, meaning that, you know, about levels of education, about income, about even healthcare outcomes, about how Asian Americans compare to other minority groups? you've got to remember a lot of this data is really centered around East Asians and mm-hmm. it's not substratify, substratifying into Southeast Asians. What about Cambodians who were here because they survived the Khmer Rouge? What about Hmong Americans who have been displaced uh, in their history and have survived war and famine and death and all these things? What about Vietnamese Americans who came here escaping communism? who've come from a long uh, legacy of war and trauma and have already have some predisposition to to mental health illness and and pressure, the pressures of being not just immigration uh, immigrants, but, you know, first or second generation immigrants and having to be tasked with navigating a different culture navigating two cultures. If you take all that and then you throw this whole silly China virus thing in there, it sort of lumps us all together, uh, again, as a monolith, right? And, you know, the, the, what really bothers the heck out of me is, like, a lot of the Chinese Americans that I know are Cantonese-speaking Chinese Americans who came here escaping, whose families came here immigrating to escape the Chinese government, right? Um, we're talking about the Cultural Revolution. We're talking about all the, the historical factors that are brought Asian Americans to this country, and there's so much depth and complexity and history to the Asian American community. Even that, like that phrase, Asian American doesn't really do itself, do us justice, right? As a group of people. And again, is not always inclusive of South, inclusive of South Asians. <laughs> so it's, it's been really, I think this is an important moment for us to, to really to stick together in some ways, but also to help people understand Asian America in realizing that no, I didn't immigrate here from China. <laughs> um, two, we're not all Chinese. Three, um, Chinese as a language is very complex. Um, you know, there's so much to be discussed here, right? But if all they're seeing is, uh, oh, you're a, you're an Asian, an Asian man or an Asian person, <laughs> right? And you can even talk about the gender dynamics between you know how we how Asian men are perceived in American culture versus Asian
0: women. That's a totally different topic too. And I think yeah, the whole sentiment coming up is that at the end of the day we're all human and we're also trying to figure out who we are as people whether it like be all these different cultures from history and then coming to america and things like that hopefully this is telling the world that if anything we get to be more empathetic to each other and we are really all going through something (laughs) every day and i'm gonna we're gonna wrap up the podcast so this is my last question um i'm curious how you both see kind of the next few months panning out i know it's very um, unknown, um, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on kind of how things are gonna go like statewide and nationally.
1: I think I think it's a very precarious situation, obviously. Strictly from just medical perspective, everybody in New York here, all my colleagues, my attendings, we're sitting around waiting for the next wave in fear, honestly. A lot of anxiety here about what comes next. Is, is uh, indoor dining gonna be the trigger? Is the flu gonna be the trigger? In a couple of months now, we're gonna have flu on top of coronavirus. Are we gonna be able to know what's going on? Is it gonna be worse? I think there's a lot of anxiety about what's gonna happen in the next few months. And I honestly don't have a, a great answer here about when this is gonna happen, this second wave, or if it's gonna happen at all. I hope it doesn't. On a larger scale, this nationally it's it's you know, we gotta make our voices heard in November. That's essentially it this election November really decides where we go as a nation that also kind of probably will decide how we'll be treated in the next X amount of years or basically how, how everything will turn out. <laughs> and, you know, that that's, that's what's scary about this. That's, that's the scariest part is that, you know, there's this like decision that happens in November that changes everybody's lives very drastically. This is like, this isn't your, Normal election of just like Democrats and Republicans. This is extreme radicalist and maybe some sense of normalcy for the first time in four years.
2: Really agree with Alex on this one. I I, I was kind of thinking about this in terms of, and maybe this is the moment in California right now, is that, and the entire West Coast really. We're currently in a, you know, the perfect storm of pandemic, uh, ecologic crisis, climate crisis essentially. On top of everything else that's going on in our basic society, and and a lot of the things that we actually have some sense of control over, but in my opinion, I feel like the U.S. is sort of flailing right now. We're we're acting sort of helpless, right? We're kind of going, oh, we're not going to get this under control, so let's just open up or let's just let's just go on with life because we're tired of coronavirus. But coronavirus isn't done with us yet, and I really wish I had something more um optimistic to say. And I think. I agree with Alex, a lot of this really um, weighs on our election. And I think my biggest source of anxiety right now is the, this probably isn't a partisan podcast, but if you look at the platform of fear that Donald Trump runs on, a lot of this, a lot of the people who vote for that side right now are anti-science, anti-vaccine. There's a lot of blatant racism fear that they're running on and there's this insane privatization of the healthcare sector right if you look back at early in the pandemic there's a white house press conference where they were going to talk about their national testing strategy and they brought up uh i think it was like the ceo of like walmart and cvs and i looked at that and i went to my i thought to myself how strange that was because instead of leaning on our, our our public health officials which they briefly spoke also and then they made up something about Google rolling out a testing strategy, which it has not come to fruition in any meaningful way. If you look at that, like our country like went full capitalist. <laughs> like, like if you like had to put a, put our healthcare system on a scale of capitalism to like socialism, the countries with socialized medicine have done pretty well, you know, look at South Korea, they're going to be dealing with waves of this, but for the most part, like their society is still moving on. right? Canada just reported i think uh, a single day without any coronavirus deaths which is a huge accomplishment for a big country right so instead of like leaning into you know creating public health infrastructure we, we went like full capital <laughs> that was like that was like, the, that was like where we placed our bets and i think if we're going to continue down this path of further privatization capitalizing on on uh, on crisis anti science anti vaccine I'm very worried about our country. And I think I really do agree with Alex that a lot of our country's future with coronavirus really depends on this election. And I'm not saying that Joe Biden is going to get elected and that this will go away overnight, but we need to be on a track to somewhere. We need to be on some sort of national centralized track. We need funding. We need funding for public health infrastructure. Uh, In California, we need funding for firefighting. We need to like really enhance all these public sector things because I don't think this is the time for us to be so individualistic and the result of this in the last four years has been increasing American isolation. We've withdrawn from the World Health Organization we're like banned from travel to a lot of countries in the world and I, I was listening to something recently that said um, you know they're moving towards taking away temperature screenings in in airports because if you're a traveler coming from another country the United States, you're more likely to cr- contract coronavirus here than to uh, bring coronavirus in <laughs> and distribute it. So that was a long-winded answer, but I'm, I'm I'm worried about the future of our country, and I'm I'm worried about the distribution, manufacturing, and the equity of getting a coronavirus vaccine out there when it is finally available.
1: If you're listening to this and it made you feel some sort of way, angry, upset, sad, we encourage you to vote. That's, that's the best way to get our... Our voices out there, and you know, even if you're not sure what you're voting for, just go vote because we need to create a strong voting block of, of Asian Americans. The only way we get our voices heard is if we have votes attached to them. And so, even if you don't know what you're voting for, and I hope it's not Trump. I'm just going to say that out out front and outright. Like, I don't. We don't know the answer, but it's not Trump. That's that's the answer, by the way. Um, Let's just go vote so that we have a strong voting block and so that when an Asian American community or an Asian American has a concern about something, it's heard by our legislators.
2: I agree. Go vote. And um, if you're a Vietnamese American, talk to your parents. <laughs> really, try to have a meaningful dialogue with them because I know that our cultural community is very split politically right now by generations, which is another very complex question about Asian America. And maybe in some ways very specific to Vietnamese Americans. Um, you know, we have a cultural and political rift, um, that we need to cross in order to, to get the support that we need. Um, and the other thing is if you can support your local public health official, support science, try to spread the truth. Um, I see people arguing on Facebook, Twitter, social media about, a lot of things um, regarding the pandemic and i think everyone is trying to figure out what the truth is for themselves but if you can encourage people to wear masks i think we have to keep each other safe and i think supporting each other supporting our local public health officials and supporting good information and the science behind this as much as we can being willing willing to have productive conversations and maybe even to some degree confronting the anti-science sentiment, that's like where the well-being of our country and our community really lies.
0: Thank you for joining us today for our in-depth conversation about healthcare during the pandemic. That was Dr. Alex Tran and Dr. Dave Tran. We wish everyone is taking care at home, and if you're able to, are registered to vote to participate in this upcoming election. Thank you for listening and your continued support on this podcast and our documentary. Until next time.